following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, April 27th. I'm Terry Aranga with my guest, Shonda Schilling. Shonda is the author of the newly released book titled, The Best Kind of Different, Our Family's Journey with Asperger's Syndrome. Shonda is mom to Garrick, Gabriella, Grant, and Garrison, wife to World Series winning all-star pitcher Kurt Schilling and the founder of the Shade Foundation of America that provides education about sun safety and skin cancer prevention. Shonda and Kurt are spokespersons for the ALS Association addressing Lou Gehrig's disease. Shonda, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, Shonda, growing up in Maryland in the 70s, what were your conceptions of what parenting would be like when you grew up to be a mother? Well, I thought that when you said stop, your kids stopped and you know, when you're, as a, before I had children, I thought if you didn't behave, then there was the fear of the spanking and the fear of the punishment. And I think it's a whole different world than what it is right now. So just very generally, overall, with what you know of kids today, and you've just alluded to this, does it seem like when you and I went to school, is it that way now or do things seem a lot different? They're a lot different now. My kids are, are very blessed to be integrated into schools with all kinds of people. People, um, we never saw kids with differences, and the only differences we saw were behavioral and what we believe to be not as smart as the other typical kids. So I think that our kids, um, you know, are in, a, in a much better environment than we were growing up because they, being exposed to so many different kinds of people really makes them not afraid of things that are different. And I think in a world now where integration is big and we really are recognizing that there is just not a typical child and not a perfect child that, you know, we as a society have to educate our my generation on what different kids are. Um, because I certainly, you know, before I had ever heard the word Asperger's brought into my uh, vocabulary, I had never known that there were kids like this. Mm. Well, I read your wonderful book, and in it, you describe some health issues. Now, what were your health? Did you have any health issues before your pregnancies or during your pregnancies in the nineties? I, um, in the when I was pregnant with Grant, who is my third child, I developed a, a DVT, a deep vein um, thrombosis, which is a blood clot in my left leg. Later, found out that it's a history in my family that we have a missing factor, so we clot too much. Um, I was I, I, I call it my year of the three when things come in threes. 
So I had that, and then by the next year, I was uh, diagnosed with Hashimoto's disease, which is a synthroid I have to take every day. It's a thyroid issue where my body just develops too fast, and it, it has to be controlled. Um, and then when I was 33, I was diagnosed with uh, malignant melanoma, which is the deadly form of skin cancer. So um, to say that I was a, living like the typical mom in, uh, when my kids were young were, was just a little bit of what my life was like. Well, sounds like you were really a trooper. <laughs> well, you know, when you're a mom, you really don't have choices. You know, you you have to buckle down and, and do the things that you need to do to keep your family together. Mm-hmm. So how are things going with your first two children, and how was family life with your husband traveling? Well, not knowing any different. It was, you know... I didn't really expect much. Um, the only thing that was probably different than what we thought was, you know, the typical life of a baseball player is usually five years. So when we decided to have Garrick, we were pretty much convinced that by the time he started kindergarten, Kurt would be retired. I mean, the odds were certainly not in our favor to play for 20 years. And when Kurt retired, Garrick was actually a freshman in, in high school. Wow. So we played far beyond what we ever imagined that we would play. So to say that, I was, you know, I knew that I was going to be raising kids. What couldn't have been further from the truth. I thought that I would be raising kids with him because he would be retired. So I actually raised the kids until the last one. It was convenient how he retired when that last one was in kindergarten. <laughs> I like to tease him. Oh, my. Well, um, you had your first two children, and then you had Grant. What year was that? I had Grant in 1999. He, uh, the first three kids were born in Philadelphia, and when Grant was about uh, nine months old, we were traded to uh, Arizona. Mm-hmm. So we picked up and moved to Arizona. But still, the first uh, year or two, we would live in Arizona during the baseball season, and then when the season ended, we would go back to Philadelphia. And then we decided that we were going to live year-round in Philadelphia. I mean, I'm sorry, year-round in Arizona, and then as soon as you get settled in there, you get you get traded somewhere else. Philadelphia is a pretty nice city. Um, may I take the liberty of asking around what part? We lived in Kennett Square. Oh, my, that's very nice. That's where Longwood Gardens is. Longwood Gardens. And it's funny, I grew up in Maryland, so we took a field trip there once to Longwood Gardens. And then to think that I ended up you know, living a mile away from Longwood Gardens. But it was beautiful there. It was yeah. beautiful. And it's the mushroom capital of the world, so we had plenty of mushrooms at our disposal. Yeah, yeah, that's one of uh, my favorite places in the world to take my son. So mm-hmm. thank you for sharing that. Well, was Grant always more individualistic than your other children, or did something seem to change? Uh, no, I, I mean, looking back on it now, I see that there were, you know, things that made him different. But when you're a young mom and, and they were five and three and one when we landed in Arizona and had all these health issues at the at the time, you know, I just thought that, you know, there's a lot going on in the house. He's the baby. We've just made this big move. Um, so there always seemed to be a reason for why he, I, I think we called him willful. You know, he's funny. He's very willful. You know, he wants things his way. And, um he was certainly different than the other kids, but, you know, the other kids were born in Pennsylvania and they were being raised in Pennsylvania, so there was no uprooting in their life. So, um, you know, you tend to be busier, and Kurt became um, a much better baseball player when he made it, so it was a much more exciting time. 
with him being with the Arizona Diamondbacks. So, and the kids started school. My oldest one had started kindergarten, so he was kind of the the kid in the family that got, you know, shoveled around to wherever everybody else went. Mm-hmm. So he was probably just miserable because you think, you know what, I wouldn't want to be drug around. So I think that we just, because, again, we'd never been exposed to people who were different or had different personalities, we just thought of our own childhood, and that was my mom told me to stop, I stopped. There was consequences if I didn't. So, you know, I just, when he was young, just thought he was just a willful child. Yeah, um, I had a similar experience. I'm not really fond of the willful misnomer. I bought a book about um, having a strong will child. Uh I wish I were a good pitcher. I would just pitch that. Right out the window. <laughs> There's a lot of theories that don't work when you have your own children and you know about uh, differences, I think. But do, do you think, Shonda, that, um, you know, when I went to school, it, it didn't seem like so many kids were, you know, ju- I know disrespect to the kids. Um, I, I I think something's changed in the world, but um, there didn't seem to be as many kids jumping up and down out of their seats like jack-in-the-boxes and having learning challenges and stuff. Well, I, I think t- there's a couple things. One, there was uh, teachers had control. There's a lot loose boundaries now than there were back when I went to school. Um, the teachers, I don't think, have a lot of control. <laughs> I mean, they the kids, it's like, I feel like now when I take my kids out, some of the stuff that my kids do, my mom would have just smacked me right there, right there in the middle of public and wouldn't have cared and would have actually probably been supported for doing that. And my kids know that they're not going to get smacked. They know I can't smack them. So that there's that fear that's gone in kids nowadays, whether it's related uh to more diagnosis, you know, I don't know. I just know that that part of it seems to be, um, the way that kids are raised today are completely different than what how we were raised, and not that the way we were raised was better. It's just the, the a fact. I mean, I, I think about the children who probably had a really hard time sitting in their seat, and um, you know they probably didn't do as well as mm. they might might have been able to do. Well, you mentioned you mentioned the word fear, and I'm just going to segue from from that. Um, was Grant a very anxious child? Did he have behavioral symptoms of inflexibility? He was in, it, it, his he was very inflexible um, when it came to things like riding to uh, to visit Kurt because his spring training was in Tucson and we were in Phoenix. I mean, he wanted his TV program on. We had a video in the car and. You know, and for that two hours, I, I I know that I gave it to him because it wasn't worth the the persistent arguing and negotiating that I had to do with him. Hmm. And there were times because I was alone that I gave him I gave it to into him because you know I needed peace and quiet. Mhm. Mhm. And was there anxiety on top of that? On for him? Yes. No. Okay. It just seemed to be that he was uh, feet dug in on certain issues and he wasn't going to bend. Mm-hmm. Well, I noticed, you know, you have some wonderful, beautiful pictures in your book. Um, I did notice one um, where he's got really rosy cheeks, and I read that his cousin Cooper had food allergies. Was Grant a picky eater? Did he have food allergies? 
Um, he didn't have food allergies, and I think that I wouldn't have noticed if he was so much of a picky eater because my husband is. So dinner time was not your typical, you know, mom put a dinner on the plate. Again, this comes back to childhood. You know, when we were growing up, sports were played after school. They weren't played at 7 o'clock at night and 6 o'clock at night right in the middle of dinner time. So, you know, that was part of of your daily family life was you played the sport after school and then you came home and ate dinner. So I don't think, um, and with us, you know, most of the time we were going to the ballpark at dinner time. So to be able to say that he was picky, there wasn't a lot of choices because he was eating at the ballpark. He was eating dinner at the ballpark. So, mm-hmm. you know, he was basically eating a hot dog or whatever we had there for dinner. So that would be hard for me to be able to say. You told a really interesting story in your book that in Grant's system of logic, he went into the neighbor's house and he got some Pop-Tarts. And his logic was because they had better Pop-Tarts. I know. I know. He walked right past us. I was at the gate talking to the neighbor, and he walked right past us, walked right into her house, you know, never missed a step said hello, walked right by, came right back out, and he was eating a Pop-Tart. And I knew he didn't walk by me with a Pop-Tart. And I said, what are you doing? I was so embarrassed. He said, why? They have better Pop-Tarts. And it was just that you look back on that now, you know, and that's cute when you're three and four and five years old. But when you start to be six and your kids do stuff like that, it's not so cute anymore. Yeah, 17-year-olds, the the neighbors call the the cops. So... Right, but it was very logical on Grant's part. And we'll pick up with this when we come back from break with Shonda Schilling, the author of The Best Kind of Difference. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. 
Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Shonda Schilling, author of the author of the new book, The Best Kind of Different: Our Family's Journey with Asperger's Syndrome. And by the way, Shonda, where can listeners pick up a copy of this book? Um, Barnes and Noble sells it, Border sells it, and um, Amazon sells it, and uh, now Target and Walmart sell it online. Okay, very good. Well, before the break, we were talking about um, some symptoms like sensory difficulties, and um, we I had to ask about picky eating. Um, so, I always I always find schools discouraging children with Asperger's from hugging um, uh, to be ironic because it can be a nice attempt at socialization. Did Grant face social challenges? You tell a story like that in your book. Well, I think the biggest thing that that I noticed when he was younger was when he got to be about three or four, if he were aggravated by the older kids to the point of tears or he had hurt himself and I would try to do what most mothers would do is, give him a hug, um, I could not hug him. And so it would be this frustrating uh, cycle of him screaming it out on the floor, and then, you know, I go to hug him, and he's screaming at me, don't touch me, and then I would stand back and let him, you know, kind of digest everything, and then he would say, you didn't do anything. You didn't even do anything to help me. So I I felt like I was in a no-win with him. But you also said that he was a very affectionate child. He is. I mean, he never... You never came into the room that he didn't run into you going 100 miles an hour, but as you learn, he had to do it on his terms. He's very um, sweet. He, Even though he can't read social cues, he can walk into a room and emotionally feel which person needs that smile or that that personal ask of how they're doing or, or a hug. I mean, it's can be so confusing, and yet it can be so beautiful at the same time. Yes, you mentioned that he was very compassionate. So, yeah, I had a friend whose whose son uh, ran up to hug her at the end of the school day, and the teacher drew him back so sharply that she, you know, dug her nail into his arm and punctured him. And I just, I always thought, well, that's so great that the child is making that attempt at socialization. Right. why would the school discourage them from hugging? They can't. They can't touch because Grant did the same thing, too. The bus driver on the first day of school, he walked up and hugged her and thanked her and got off the bus. And she said, even though it's the sweetest thing that she's ever seen, he, they, by law, cannot touch each other. Mm-hmm. So, but those are the kind of things that Grant does that, you know, makes you so prideful and, and you know, just makes you go, that's so sweet. Those are the things in life that 
people remember. You know, people that means something to them, and it's kind of sad because he's so he's so mixed up socially, but yet, you know, those are tender moments that kind of stick with us and make our days. Right. You know, on the break we were talking about how there are a lot of people who don't know what families with Asperger's or autism go through. They don't know that we're out there. And um, a friend of mine observed that it could be because, you know, families facing these challenges don't feel comfortable taking their children in public places, and so the public doesn't know. How do you feel about the armchair quarterbacking of bystanders and their public perceptions and quote-unquote advice? Well, I think I was, uh, I would like to say the victim of all that unwanted advice and all that, um, you know, the ironic thing is that my son can't read any social cues and I can read somebody's face, you know, perfectly. And so I was much more aware of how everyone else was treating or, or thinking towards me. And, you know, in my case, no one ever says anything to my husband, but they feel much easier about saying it to me. Um, and so... I feel like that's part of the reason why I wrote the book. You know, I tell the story in there about being on the baseball board and the one parent had not told the board that her child had Asperger's and the baseball board blew up. And the things they were saying were I had parents apologizing to me. I had people saying to me, I can't believe that you can coach this kid. He's unmanageable and all that stuff. And the whole time he knows I have an Asperger child and yet He's freely talking like this, like this child is the worst-case scenario of a child. And they didn't have any regard for me, but yet that's because they didn't understand. They didn't understand the child that they have. So I think if we educate the public um, to try and think a little bit the way that they do and be receptive to the to the little things that you know make them quirky or different, then we really, as a society, have this great... Um, avenue to bring out the absolute best in these children. But we can't do that unless we tell the teachers and we tell the their friends and we you know and they have the tools to be able to do that. The doctors over the past 10, 12, 20 years don't want to label children and I think that I feel completely the opposite that unless you have that label, people don't know how to deal with it. Now, I have a younger son who has um, dyslexia. That doesn't mean that my son is not going to be able to read. It gives the teachers and the people the tools to help him be able to be a productive student. Now, without those tools, too, in telling a teacher that they have Asperger's, does not, you know, if you don't tell them, it, it's not giving them the proper tools to be able to make them a productive adult. And that's just, it doesn't have to be everybody's way of thinking, but it's my way of thinking. Right, and in, in a very practical sense, too, you know, we were talking again on the break about how going into a, a neighbor's house with very good logic, I might add, at three years old is cute, but at, you know, 21 years old, the neighbors might call the police, and the police need to know how to, you know, gently and safely and humanely um, respond to the person who is doing this, you know, out of no ill will, but so that it doesn't escalate the situation. Right. And, and those are boundaries that even though a lot of kids don't have those social cues or don't understand those things, that's what we do over the years. We teach them. And so it, it be, kind of becomes a maturity thing that, you know, my 10-year-old is the maturity level of maybe a 7- or an 8-year-old, but by the time he's a 25-, 30-year-old man, he's the same maturity level as a 20- and a 40-year-old man. 
it's just much more microscoped when they're eight and ten years old and supposed to be progressing socially as society has made it acceptable. Mm-hmm. So you've alluded to strategies. Um, you've taught. You've mentioned schools. Let's let's start with that. School accommodations and IEPs. Right. Well, Grant is on a 504 plan, um, and that doesn't mean that he won't go on an IEP. Um, he he is in a room with an aide for another child that is able to um, help him if he's stuck. But Grant also has the ability to um, take tests in another room. He has the ability to do tests on the computer. He has the ability to take the test orally. Um, and it's strange enough that Grant doesn't want to do those things, and sometimes he fails, um, because not because he wants to be different. He doesn't want to do it because he doesn't think it's fair. And so every time I think I've got my head wrapped around him, he throws a zinger of how his brain really does work because that's the kind of way that we would think, oh, I don't want to do that, I don't want an aid, I don't want this because it's going to make me different. He looks at it as he, does, he doesn't think it's going to be fair for him to get the leg up on the other kids. Mm. All right. You know, you brought up um, the fact that you perceive that your son thinks differently, um, processes differently. I know that one of the things that felt most hurtful to me uh, back when, you know, my son got his diagnosis was that um, can I, will I fully be able to understand how he thinks or I want him to be able to enjoy things the way I enjoy things, you know. Um, how do you feel about that? That people would ask you that? Is that what you're no, or, how, or is that what you were thinking? How do you feel about pro- processing? How do you think your son processes information? I think he processes it differently mm-hmm. than I do, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the society has made it the right way or the wrong way. I mean, when we think that he speaks with no filter and speaks truthful, I mean, there's something kind of cool about that, I think, that we don't, he doesn't have to play games. Mm-hmm. Um, and that when he grows up, he's going to do what he wants to do when he gets older. He's not going to do something influenced by status or, or financial gain. Exactly. He's going to do something that he truly loves, and don't we all wish that we could do that? Yeah, yeah. It's my my stepson um, is doing very well. He's on the spectrum, but he's doing very well. And just seeing, you know, the honesty there. Um, there's not that filter, uh, that that honesty and compassion too. It's right. very nice. It's well, they're not afraid because they don't read our social cues. You know, Grant, when he was in the first grade, his his best friend has Down syndrome, and it's probably because he didn't see anything except there that, oh, he's not getting included in. So he went in seeing that part, but he couldn't see the fear of the kids thinking that he was different. So he became that, that kid in the classroom who made sure that, that Stephen was included in on the things that the other kids were doing and somehow worked it so the kids weren't afraid of something different, you know. Stephen, he would bring his paper over to the table and make sure that all the kids saw, look at this great job that Stephen's doing. And and on the flip side, he doesn't let Stephen get away with, you're not able to do this. I don't want to hear this. And he's 
forcing him to be a little boy because he doesn't take the disabilities that he imagines he might have like we do. You know, he he calls him out for being a little boy. Wow, that's beautiful. So mm-hmm. Grant doesn't see Stephen as different. No. He knows that he's, he looks different. He knows that he talks different. But he's a little boy, and how do you know you can't do anything if you don't try it? Wow, what a beautiful way of putting it, Shonda. Well, you mentioned 504. What is that? Uh, the difference right now is for Grant is that he is capable of doing the work. Um, now, when and that's because he's ten years old, and school districts might be different. He's able to do the homework right now. He's able to be productive in the class. But if he were having trouble and making it harder for other kids to be able to learn, that's when you get the aid put in the class. Which I wouldn't be surprised if he may get that later. All right, very good. We'll come back with Shonda Schilling. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. Mark your calendar and set an alarm so you do not miss the highly acclaimed talk show, Holistic Living with Tina Marie and Todd Allen. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, and 10 a.m. Pacific for inspirational, oftentimes edgy discussions on all that life brings our way with celebrity guests, world-famous authors, and everyday people dedicated to sharing positive, uplifting messages. Tina Marie and Todd Allen bring you the very best in talk radio discussions, guaranteed to make you smile. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Terry. 
We're back with Shanta Schilling, author of The Best Kind of Different, Our Family's Journey with Asperger's Syndrome. And before the break, we were talking about Grants 504, and I had asked about school accommodations and IEPs. Now let's talk about daily living strategies at home or going out into the community. Um, how did you make life more comfortable for Grant in those ways? Um, well, I think the biggest thing that we do in our house is we try to prepare for the situation but that we're going into. But, you know, anybody who has a child with any form of autism, and just typical children, you know, you never know what you're going to get once you get out there. So I feel like uh, my day is spent trying to think, of, think ahead to cut something off that might be um, a debate later on, but that never works that way. Kurt refers to Grant as our little jack-in-a-box. We never know when he's going to pop up and when he's going to scare us or when he's going to make us cry. And So, I mean, I think that a lot of what we try to do is schedule and preparing him for the situation. Um, and it can be something as little as on Thursday night you have a soccer game, you know, so he's prepared for it because we find that if we forget to tell him and it's 4 o'clock and he needs to put his socks on at 4.30, we know that he's going to dig his heels in and he's just not going to want to do it and not going to cooperate because it's not on his terms. Well, why do you think that is? Why do you think that children with Asperger's um, exhibit this, that kind of um, uh, behavior? I think it's sensory. I think that, um, you know, myself, I'm able to make the adjustment and go on because I can, you know, I can digest that I need to move faster, I can digest that, you know, I can grab stuff and I can do things on the whim, but I don't think that they, this sensory digestion is this is all at once for kids with autism and Asperger's. I think that they do them one at a time, maybe two at a time, so it's it's harder for them to jump into the next thing. And I try to explain to people that when you give up, this is what is the easiest way for me a typical person to be able to explain Grant, that when I prepare for a speech and I think that I've got it, you know, all down and I've rehearsed it and everything and I go to give the speech and it doesn't come off and we've all been in these situations where you're going, you're reading faces and you're trying to compensate and you feel like you're you're overloaded, that is exactly what kids with autism and Asperger's feel when new moments have been put on them. It, it's that prepared moment where there's just too many sensories coming in and they can't digest it. And it's just something that we think about that one moment that might happen, you know, when a car cuts us off and we can react and all that kind of stuff. But these are kids that feel this all during the day. Mm -hmm. So to avoid that feeling is is a schedule, is the schedule is what they need. And they need to be prepared for the transitions that go on. And that's why I think so many of them do so well in school because, they have these trans these transitions put in place for them. So, do you think their mind prepares them ahead of time for walking out the front door of the house or going into the supermarket to deal with those sensory bombardments they'll face in those situations? Perhaps. Yes, I do. It's very interesting. Did Did Grant have any difficulty with things like um, noises at the ballpark? That can be pretty noisy. He uh, he did not like the noises at the ballpark, and so the the fortunate thing is when I had my first one and I had my second one, 
We've always had at our home games, um, we've been very lucky that the teams we play for provided a room that if the kids didn't want to go, they could go and play because you figure this is their life. I mean, they're there every day. What mm-hmm. kid honestly wants to sit at a baseball game every single day of their life when all their friends that they see every day, they can sit in a room and play? So Garrick I kind of took out there. We were the oldest on the team in Philadelphia, so there really wasn't many people for him to play with. He was my new, you know, my first one. I did the same thing with my second one, but by, time, by the time the third one came, that break, because I didn't have any help, I didn't have a nanny or anything, that break at the ballpark, I would rather put him in the room than wrestle kids in the stands. Uh-huh. And so, luckily, Grant never really had to sit out there, Um Unless we went to an away game, which, you know, when he was younger, he would just sleep when mm-hmm. he was at a game. So, no, he did not like it. And I just thought, well, this is my fault because I didn't put him outside at the games. I didn't get him used to it. But, you know, hindsight, looking back on it, he, every time that I had ever made him go sit out in the stands, it was a nightmare. And one of us would end up walking around and one of, you know, my parents were there. We'd be walking around to keep him, try to keep him from melting down. You know, you just mentioned thinking that you were doing something wrong yourself. Um, Since your husband was traveling so much, how did needing to make so many decisions on your own in these situations affect your ability to cope? Well, I think that I felt like my job as a mother, I mean, I want to make that really clear that it wasn't that I was a baseball wife. It was the fact that I wanted to be a mother, and I wanted to be a great one. So the, when I was the mother that I was a, a stay-at-home mom that was really by herself, which a lot of people are. There are a lot of men and women who take that role as a parent, and the other parent travels. So I was taking it with pride, and when my son was not reacting and I didn't have control of him, I felt embarrassed, and I felt like I failed as a parent. Mm. And when I tried to talk to my husband, who couldn't possibly see what was going on in our house and understand it, and he only had the visual of what it was like when his household, when his mom and dad said stop, he stopped. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't he couldn't relate to me. So it became very frustrating, and what happened between us is that I didn't want to tell him anymore because the last thing I wanted to hear was, you're not, you have no control. He's walking all over you. You know, you need to make him respect me. I knew in my heart that this wasn't what this is. I just had no idea what it could possibly be other than he didn't respect me. So it became very frustrating and isolated, and I was embarrassed because I felt like I was failing. At the one job in the world that I had and the one job that I valued the most, I was failing at it. Bingo. That's exactly exactly the way it feels. Yeah, so it sounded like... You were blaming yourself, and how did all of this have a further impact on your health? Um, I mean, I think that I thought that I was um, good. I was functioning. I was standing up every day. I was getting the kids to where they needed to be, and I was showing up at the ballpark and smiling. And um, it and it was funny because after he was diagnosed, the doctors were like, you need to get some help. And, and it meant mentally, and I would come unglued because I thought, how dare you? I'm the one who's dealing with all this, and I'm doing fine. But in reality, I mean, I wasn't doing fine. On the, on the outside, I was doing fine. I was doing all the things that I was supposed to be doing and probably, you know, 
pushing myself further than I than I should have been. But when it came down to I wasn't allowing myself to grieve, I wasn't allowing myself a break in being feeling like a bad mom. Um, and so times that I thought that I had I had convinced myself that I was sick, depression doesn't mean that you're laying in bed 24 hours a day. Depression can happen when you're standing on your feet. And I had no idea that I was depressed until I could sit down and talk with somebody and realize that I really was. Those times that I convinced myself that I was just so sick, I needed to go to bed. You know, during the day when I put the kids in school and I came back home and I slept and I jumped up at 2 o'clock, embarrassed that I had slept all day long, it was really my body just shutting down. And my body's saying, hang on, you've had, you got a lot on your plate. Mm-hmm. So you need this break. And so I would, you know, sleep, but I would still jump up. And I thought, well, if nobody knows, then I must have been sick and I must have been better. And, I, you know, because if I was depressed, then I was failing. And that's the way I looked at it. Mm-hmm. How do you think men handle this type of situation um, differently than women? Well, I mean, I can only speak from my point of view that until I got some, you know, a third person, I call a referee between my husband and I, I couldn't see anything other than blatant disrespect for me. He doesn't appreciate what my, what I do. He doesn't understand what I do. Um, and so his way of handling it was not to handle it. You know, it doesn't exist. Until he retired a year ago, Trust me, he's getting it full. <laughs> he's getting a full lesson on what my life was like. And actually, writing the book, he even admits that he had no idea until I wrote the book what my life was really life be- like. Because he's looking at it as you got a roof over your head, you don't want for anything, you don't have to go to work. Why are you complaining? Which was making me come unglued at him. I was angry at him. I was angry at him because I didn't think that he worked as hard to have a relationship with Grant um, as the other relationships were easy with the kids. You know, they missed him, they wanted to see him, they got what they needed from him, and they were gone. Those two could never um, seem to make a relationship and to make matters worse. I felt like he was he was yelling at him because he wasn't acting the way he wanted, and then I thought, how dare you? I don't yell at him, and I'm with him 24 hours a day. So there was a... There was a lot of things certainly pulling us apart as a family um, until this diagnosis came along. Wow. So much of this sounds so familiar. Mm-hmm. My, my and, that, and that feels that way with everybody. And so when I get the the people who have found me and written me letters who've said, your story is my story with the names changed around, you know, I realize that I have such a gift because I realize now I'm not alone. Right. That somebody understands what I'm going through, somebody understands the frustration, and somehow that makes us feel better. It makes us feel better that we're not crazy right. and that somebody understands us. Right. That's right. Yeah. And that's what I, I love about the book is that that person not only feel doesn't feel alone anymore, but now they understand there's so many of us out there going through the same exact thing, but we just need to talk about it. Absolutely, and we really appreciate your talking about it with us today and sharing. And um, this is Shonda Schilling. She's the author of the book, The Best Kind of Different, Our Family's Journey with Asperger's Syndrome. We'll pick up with this when we come back from break. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. 
better. Voice America Health and Wellness. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com if you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Shonda Schilling, author of The Best Kind of Different, Our Family's Journey with Asperger's Syndrome. And Shonda, let's talk about the sibling relationships. How does Asperger's affect sibling relationships? Well, I think it's probably very frustrating because I always say that we love him for who he because <laughs> we need him. And a sibling's instinct is to, you know, agitate and do all that kind of stuff. So when he's very frustrating to them, it's hard for kids to understand that it's your brother and you're supposed to love him and you're supposed to accept him the way he is. I mean, none of us were that way when we were kids. So, um, you know, it's very hard for them to understand why he got his way and why sometimes things that are fair to him are not fair to them. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's you sit down to dinner and he doesn't want to eat and, um, a certain food, but they still have to eat it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just some things not worth arguing over, but there are things worth arguing over for me. So I think that's the frustrating part. And yet a couple um, weeks ago, my daughter was in a play, and one of the boys in the play had Asperger's, and he had missed a line and, and got stuck where he was very frustrated and crying off the side of the stage, and we could hear him. And she was able to approach him in a way that he was able to receive the news and maybe begin to start to calm down, 
which would not been able she wouldn't have been able to unless you know he was she had been exposed to it right now have you ever tried um have you ever needed to use social stories yes <laughs> social stories are a big are, are a big part of it but um I think that unfortunately having four kids it's if I say to him you know if I go over it a couple times with him and I ask him to read it his automatic response is I already know it so um I don't have that place where I sit down and I can repeat it over and over and over to him again which is you know one of those things that I go okay I that's one I one I'm not so great on I have to find something that works for our family you mentioned that you had some good success with animals with Grant. Right, right. He loves animals. Um, and he really communicates. You know, he really is a very soft, tender person. We just took him horseback riding on vacation for the first time, and he was so engaged and so happy at that moment to, to have that relationship with that horse. And um, I think it's just a safe place for them. You know, they the dogs give back, um, our dogs give back what he needs, um, mm-hmm. and they don't really require anything from him. You know, it's interesting, but sometimes um, animals can sense when people need compassion, too. Right. And there's that um, that pure, that purity. Right, right. No, absolutely, and I think that it's unconditional. Yes. And um, non-judgmental. Yes. Yep. It's a very healing thing for for kids, uh, or especially mine, to be around animals. Well, Shonda, what do you feel is the importance of support groups? That's, I think, what I, what I try to say the most about being, uh, writing the book and what I've learned and writing in the book that I didn't start to heal until I reached out and I had to be ready on my turns to reach out. But I think when we realize that we're not alone, it's amazing how it turns our attitudes and how it allows us to breathe and be able to say the things that people with typical children who, or who don't understand our lifestyle, can. we can say those things and get those off our chest and maybe understand them and feel that someone understands us. And, it, and I think it brings a much happier place to, to our home when we can do that, plus the strategies and the and and things that we can learn from others can only help us down the line. You know, yes, I've been in this situation where he goes into the restaurant and he doesn't want to be in the restaurant. How did you cope with that? You know, th- those are things, um, you know, and we can all relate to that in different ways. I, I say situations as being a baseball wife, there were situations that only another baseball wife could understand. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and that's the same with kids with, Asperger's or any kind of disabilities, we we pull strength from in numbers. And when we know that there's other people out there in numbers who understand us, that's what makes us stronger inside. All right, and and along those lines of support groups and resources and websites, are there any of these that you especially recommend? Well, for me, I'm in New England, and I have really found a lot of support out of the Asperger's Association of New England, and. Um, and then there's a camp here in, that my son attends in, um, in the summertime, which when you realize how blessed we are, I mean, this camp is literally 15 minutes from me um, and how lucky I was to have it here, that 
we should have camps like this everywhere for people to be able to access, uh, you know, for the kids to be able to go to a, a typical camp experience and be able to t- be taught these lessons that will help them grow and help them be able to transition into the next stages of their lives is just amazing. And that's the youth care camp that's uh, based out of Mass General here. Right. You mentioned that in your book. And, and are there any additional websites or um, other resources? Uh, no, those are the two that I work with or that I access, and then there's always the think tank of moms in my neighborhood that um, just recently I found out that there was, you know, 20, 20 kids just in our school district alone that have Asperger's. So if there's 20 kids in the small little town that I live in, that just shows you how many kids there must be um, in the United States alone that have Asperger's and that are not quite understood yet. Oh, absolutely. So, so I'm hoping that the book allows us to put that barrier down and lets, lets people into our life a little bit to really understand how our child ticks. And, you know, you think back into the high school days where those kids, we knew who those kids were. We, knowing what we know now, those kids that invaded our, you know, your personal space that didn't really know how to carry a conversation on or talked obsessively, we went to school with those kids. And you can't help but think, what amazing things they would have been able to accomplish in life if they would have just been understood mm-hmm. and the teachers and the coaches and the parents around them that would be able to pull those wonderful things out of them. Very good. And, and Shonda, let's remind listeners where they can obtain a copy of your book, The Best Kind of Different, Our Family's Journey with Asperger's Syndrome. Uh, you can uh, get that on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble and Borders sell them in the stores and Target and Walmart also sell them online. Very good. Your take-home message for listeners today? I think the biggest thing is that for me, I know when I was in the grocery store and my son was melting down and I got the stares and I got the judgment, and, and, you know, myself was guilty of doing that before I had kids. You know, why can't they control their kids? I hope that our family is a perfect example of you never know what's going on in someone's life and I hope as a society that we become more patient and we become more um, sympathetic to other people. If someone would have smiled at me, and I am making sure that I do that in every part of my life now to not be judgmental of, of parents and their kids and be able to give that smile to the person instead of that glare of, oh, get a hold of them. But, you know, we are put on the earth to take care of each other, and I just think that would make just an uplifting difference in our lives if we could learn to be a little nicer and receptive to everyone. Wonderful point. Well, Shonda, thank you for sharing your time and insights here with us today. And Shonda Schilling will be speaking at the Autism One Generation Rescue 2010 conference in Chicago. The conference extends May 24th through the 30th. Shonda will also be the featured speaker at the You Deserve It Dinner and Dance, which is on this Saturday, May 29th. With over 160 speakers and over 170 lectures, this is a conference you will not want to miss to help your child. Please visit www.autismone.org. For questions about this show, please email me at taranga at autismone.org. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
Baker would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.